Welcome back. We're studying the 12th chapter of Ilkhot Ishu. This chapter is quite long, actually, and it deals with the rights and responsibilities conferred by the Nisuim to both the husband and the wife. When a man marries a woman, this is the second stage Nisuim, whether she's Betula or Be'ula, whether she's Gedola, an adult or a minor, whether she is born Jewish or was freed from being a servant or converted, there is 10 basic rights or 10 basic responsibilities the husband owes to the wife after the Nisuim. And there is four rights that he has with respect to her. From these ten, three of them are from the Torah, biblical prescriptions, and these are they. Uh, when the Torah describes a a girl who her father is uh, is under debt and he he actually marries her off as a as a minor to somebody else who agrees to pay the father a certain amount. That's called amma ivriya. So if uh, if after if after this girl sorry she's not married off at first she's sold as a servant as a servant girl then if the one who buys her wants to marry her the torah says he has to marry her exactly like any other marriage relationship and one of the things he cannot deprive her of is these three things learn these are basic rights that every single woman irrespective of class deserves after Nisuim. She'eraha She'eraha means uh, sustenance, food, nourishment. Kesutaha kemashmao. Kesutaha means uh, clothing, literally. Onataha. Onataha means her, um, let's call it, uh, ona literally means a period. It means being, being frequently together or something like that. So it, it literally means that every so often he needs to give her attention, uh, not only emotional, but also physical attention. That's called onataha. And this means that the, the husband is responsible. One of the obligations he has, every husband to have every wife, is to, um, to, um, to satisfy any intimate needs that the wife has according to the ability of the husband, as we're going to see in, in a couple of chapters. And the seven that are not Minat Torah, but are rather from Hachamim, and all of them are enforceable under court. All of them, uh, sorry, the first one of them is the basic amount, the minimum amount, which we discussed in the last chapter, that's due under the Ketubah whether 100 or 200. The other ones, all the other six, are what's called the conditions or the obligations that are uh, obligated once a ketubah is signed. And these are they. Number one, to cure her if the wife ever gets into any illness. To redeem her, to save her, to rescue her if she's ever captured. To bury her when she dies. Number four, also she has the right to be 
to be uh, supported from the husband's possessions after he dies while she is a widow. And, and, to, and to actually have a right, she has like as if it were a life estate to their home. Also, his her daughters, her daughters that come from this guy, should also have the right to be supported by him after he dies, until they get married to someone, the erusin, not the nisuin part. And also that her male sons, they have the right to inherit in addition and outside whatever prorated portion they get of the general inheritance with their other brothers, separate from this estate is the inheritance they'll receive if the mother preceded them in death and she left the ketubah, so that's taken out of the estate. This is the last right of the ten rights under the ketubah. The four that he has the right to, all of them are from, from Pachamim. These are they. Number one, number one, that any the product of her work belongs to him. So if the, the wife gets a salary of some sort, all of this goes into the pot of the husband, and he then can use this to satisfy his obligations to her. Also, if she finds something, she finds jewelry in the, in the street, this belongs, right, right, it's legally of the husband. Also, if she comes into the marriage with property and assets that belong to her, so the principle remains hers, but any interest, any dividends, anything that these assets produce during her life belongs to the husband. And if she precedes him in death, he gets to inherit her. And the husband has first priority on this inheritance right uh, before her, her children, etc. So to Hachamim established that the, the right of the woman to Mezonot is more or less can be offset by the husband's right over her handiwork, over the product of, of her efforts. Likewise, her right to be redeemed if she's captured can be offset by the husband's right to, 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 to derive benefit from the fruits of her assets. So to his obligation, his, his responsibility to bury her, just like Avraham did with Sarah in, in Me'arat HaMachpilah, this is, can be offset by his Yerusha, his inheriting of the Ketubah. Therefore, so this follows that if the woman decides, it's her right. But if she says, you know what, I am making much more money than you are giving me under the rights that I deserve. So you know what, I hereby give up the right to receive the mezonot. But on the other hand, I reserve the right to keep my own 
my own uh, income. She is entitled to say that. If she says, I prefer not to get mezonot and also not to work, we, we listen to her. And we don't force her to give her income to her husband. However, this doesn't go the other way. The husband cannot say, I, I hereby uh, decline giving you mezonot, go and work for yourself. Because uh, because maybe what he what what she gets on herself is not enough for her mezonot. That's why the mezonot are considered one of the conditions of the ketubah. All of these things, although they even if they were not written in the in the shar ketubah, although they are normally written, and even if no ketubah is written at all, as we said before, if there is two witnesses that the husband committed to the amount of the ketubah, that's enough for living together until they actually get around to writing it. Rather, he just married her without specifying any details in the ketubah, in writing. Once the nisuim occur, once there is the kenisa, the kones, the husband automatically becomes entitled to these four things. And the woman gets, becomes entitled to her ten things. This doesn't need to be expressly provided for. If the husband conditioned the marriage on, on the wife giving up one of these rights, or the wife is the one who said, you know what, we'll get married, but you don't get this or that. The condition applies. They are able, each of them, to give up this right to the other. Other than these three things for which the condition doesn't work. And anyone who conditions the marriage on these things not taking place, the t'nai doesn't doesn't. Uh, become valid and therefore the wedding occurs, the marriage takes place, and these three things are obligated. and these are they the intimacy that he owes her, the Aikar the basic amount of the ketubah, also his right to inherit her. The Yerusha, this is a right that she cannot have him give up for marriage, it's automated. Kesad, Kesad. If he conditioned the wedding with the woman, the marriage, saying, um, you know what, we are getting married, but I'm not going to be intimate with you. This tonight doesn't apply. And he becomes obligated to provide the intimacy to her. Because he conditioned it on something that has A and B. A, it is written in the Torah. And B, it's not monetary because the other two things that are written in the Torah, She'erah and Kesutaha, they can be conditioned, they can be included and waived, however, because they are mamon. However, this other one, it's neither, it's it's not mamon and it's written in the Torah, therefore it cannot be waived. If the condition was to reduce the amount of her ketubah, 
או שכתב לה מתי מומר העיקר כתובה וכתבה לו שנתקבלה מהן כך וכך, or they try to, to have a work around a loophole, they say, okay, let's write 200 in the כתובה, but then you'll write next to it that you received it from me, even though I'm never paying you anything, וכתבה לו שנתקבלה מהן כך וכך והיא לא נתקבלה, then all but this condition becomes nullified, שכל הפוחת לבתולה ממאתיים ולאלמנה ממנה, הרי זו בעילת זנות, because חכמים said categorically, anyone who does not guarantee this amount of 200 to the בתולה, or 100 to the אלמנה, which means to any בעולה, then being together is equal to זנות, they are not entitled to be together. הלכה ט' התנת עמו אחר שנשאה שלא יירשן נתנאה בטל if she is the one who makes him wave the ירושה of her if she dies in his life תנאה בטל this condition also becomes null and void ואף על פי שירושת הבעל מלבדו סופרים even though the, the, the husband's right to inherit his wife is something that רבנן עשו חיזוק לדבריהם כשלי תורה they tried החמים were very intent on making this have the same category as something מן התורה so they They made this tnai be batel. Vechol tnai she ba yerusha batel. And moreover, any condition that touches upon anything within the topic of yerusha, of who inherits whom, is batel. Ve'afal pishtuhum amon, even if it touches upon monetary things. So we said before that if something is in the Torah and is not mamon, is batel. One more thing that we are finding out right now, we are learning, and this applies in other contexts too, if something belongs to Yerusha, which is Minat Torah, or which is from Hachamim, and they wanted to make it like Minat Torah, then whether or not it has to do with Mamon, it has to do with, with uh, money, uh, sorry, although it has to do with money, and in other circumstances, the fact that it was Minat Torah would, would not mean that you cannot make a tenai on it, you could still make a tenai on this, However, in Yerusha, the Tanai is Batel, even if it's Mamon Shenemar, but because in Yerusha, we have a specific Pasuk that says, Lehukat Mishpat Ehok. It's something that we accept because the Torah said so. It's not a Mishpat, it's not something that can be derived from judicial discretion, judicial determination. And other things, the Tanai does apply. Like we mentioned before, for example, if she waves the she'er or the kesut, or for example, um, this is uh, in exchange for his waving that he's not going to benefit from the, the, the dividends or, or interest on her, on her pre-marriage assets, and everything of this sort, is valid. הלכה יוד. כמה מזונות פוסקים לאישה? What's the amount of מזונות that a woman is entitled to? פוסקים לה לחם שתי סעודות בכל יום. So this is going to be the bare minimum. The bare minimum is לחם, uh, which means not bread, but it means, it means food, food that is enough for two meals a day. סעודה בינונית שלכל אדם באותה העיר, and this is according to each person's neighborhood or city, what the average person eats, someone who is neither sick, who eats very little, nor a glutton that eats a lot, and from the same kind of food that is customary in that city, if in that city they eat wheat, let it be wheat, 
Dim seorim seorim. If it's barley, which is cheaper, let it be barley. She'ar minim she'nagubahem. So to rice or other legumes or other foods that people eat. Uposkin la parperet lechol ba'pat. And also, not only does she get bread, but also uh, something to eat with the bread. Like legumes or vegetables or things of that sort. Also, enough oil both for eating and also for having light. This is very relevant before electricity, so she can use a little bit of the night. Uferot. And, uh, and also fruits, a little bit of wine. This used to be considered a basic need. So what we are describing here is a basic basket of needs of the person in the time of the Mishnah. If it was customary in that place that women drink wine. And on Shabbat, it's three meals, not two meals. That's what we do on Shabbat. We add one more meal than is eaten during the week, namely three meals. Also, meat or, or fish, depending on the custom in the place. Also, every week she gets an allowance of one ma'a, one ma'a of silver. Which she can then use for laundry or for paying to get into the communal bathhouse and so on and so forth. When are we saying that? That the husband has to give this amount of mezonot to the wife. This is the very, very, very minimum and the poorest person that exists in Am Israel. But if the person was uh, wealthier than this, then it's relative to however much he can afford. Even if he had enough money to serve her several dishes of meat every single day, if she so wants, this is her right, and the Bedin will obligate this person to give her as much fancy food as he can afford and she wants. And the Bedin determines how much Mezonot she is entitled to based on his, uh, his his, uh, what he can afford, his means. And if a person is even poorer than, than the basic basket of needs that we described earlier, and he cannot even provide for that, then we force him to let her go and to pay her the ketubah. And this divorce is not a ketubah-free divorce. He owes her the, the, the ketubah money. Until he's able to find enough money to pay her the amount of the insurance under the Ketubah. There is an interesting point now about the Mezonot. The Mezonot is not only the amount that the wife has to... Now what happens if the husband doesn't want to eat with the wife? He says, you know what? I'll give you, my dear, I'll give you this amount of food. This is what you deserve under the ketubah, but leave me alone. You eat in that corner, I eat in this corner. She 
he's, he's entitled to do so. The mezonot don't entitle the wife automatically the right to eat together, except except for the night of Shabbat. The night of Shabbat is implied in the obligation of mezonot that they are going to eat together. When the, the bed din determines how much mezonot the wife is entitled to, and this is more than she, what she actually ends up consuming, whatever is left over is not hers, but it's the husband's. If the husband was a kohen, he's not allowed to give her all the food from the terumah that he receives from matenot kehuna. Why? Because it's a big, it's a, it's a big burden for her to need to be tehora all the time. Especially think of it, a woman is nida uh, roughly half her life. So imagine if she needs to uh, be careful and and uh, you know to, to eat to eat the, the teruma under those conditions is very difficult. It so so. He has to give her at least half of holin and half of teruma, <clears throat> and up to half teruma. And how would the kohen do that? Well, a kohen is allowed to sell teruma and to buy other things. Just like a man is obligated to support and provide nourishment and food for his wife the same obligation applies with respect to his little children to his little kids until they reach the age of six which back in the day presumably was old enough for them to at least work a little bit and get enough money to get by to survive between the age of of six and until they grow and become uh, adults until they pass puberty, he has to feed them according to the Tekana of Hachamim. This is not optional, it's mandatory, but it's not in Torah. If he doesn't want to support his little children, the bed dean of the community is going to rebuke him and embarrass him and insist until he actually agrees to do so. If after this he still didn't want to feed his little children, they're going to proclaim publicly something about him. They're going to say, This guy, he's very cruel. And he doesn't want to feed his little children. And he's worse than a non-kosher bird, namely, namely a orev, uh, a a crow about which it's said, um, or oh, sorry, everything other than, the, uh, no, it actually is the Orev. Uh, and the Orev, there is a Pasuk that says that uh, Akadosh Baruch Hu finds food even for the children of the Orev in Tehillim, and I'm blanking right now because of the late hour, but it's a Pasuk that we say, I believe, every Shabbat. Livnia Orev Asheri Krao. Livnia Orev Asheri Krao. So that's what they say about this guy. This guy is worse than an impure bird because he's not feeding his children. However, 
we only do this if he's not if he's declining to feed his children under six, not if he's doing this for over six, even though he has to. By the way, Harambam in Ilchot in Ilchot Matenot Aniim Perekzain Halachayod he explains that feeding children above the age that, that, that is mandatory is a mitzvah of tzedakah. And it's the biggest mitzvah tzedakah because tzedakah is fulfilled first and foremost with those who are closest to you. The Torah halacha wants everyone to be taken care of by those who are closest to him instead of having to go to someone who is less close than you. And this follows from the whole concept of goel in, in the Torah where whoever is the closest king is the one who takes responsibility to support uh, his family member in need. So when are we saying this? When it's not known how much money this person has and if he has enough to give tzedakah or not. But if we know how much he can afford and we know that he has enough to give tzedakah to others and he's just choosing not to give to his children, go and actually uh, confiscate some of his assets and and as if it were tzedakah, they give from these assets to his little children and they support them until they become adults. Interesting cases of what happens with a woman that uh, poor Poor lady, she, she's left alone, her husband left, they have no email, no telephone, she doesn't even know if he's ever going to come back, and he's gone for more than she thought he was going to be gone for, so she has no power of attorney over his assets, it's his, so she goes to the Beddin, and the Beddin have to decide if to confiscate these assets of this guy who is not in town to feed her or not. A person who traveled to a different city, and his wife, comes to the Bedin to claim for Mezonot under her Ketubah. For the first three months after he left, the Bedin don't hear the case. They, they don't give her Mezonot. Because the presumption is that most people, overwhelmingly, would not leave their house without leaving enough money for the first three months. From after the third month and on, the bed din do take charge and give her mezonot. And if the husband, the one who is not in town, he he had any assets, the bed din go confiscate and sell and administer these assets and give her mezonot. And even if she's working and she's making any income, and we said before that it can offset the obligation of Mezonot, the Bed-Din won't look into how this is offset. This is something between her and her husband. So the Bed-Din's responsibility is only to feed her without looking into how much she's making independently. And if the husband comes back and he sees that the woman made income, uh, made any income, this is going to be his now because his obligation to feed her was fulfilled to the Bed-Din. 
וכן אם לא עמדה בדין אלא מכרה לעצמה למזונות מכרה קיים. So too, if she doesn't go to the bedding, but she takes matters into her own hands, and this is one of many cases, many instances in which הלכה is עושה אדם דין לעצמו, that the person, if he's sure, she's sure that the right is with them, they are entitled to take matters into their own hands and act accordingly. This is הלכה. ואין הסליחה הכרזה ולא שבועה עד שיבוא בעלה ויטעון. And if she doesn't need to prove with הכרזה or with a שבועה that she sold exactly what she needed until the husband raises that claim when he comes back and he moves the bed din to hear such a claim. או עד שתבוא לגבות כתובתה חרמותו, or alternatively, if she comes to claim her כתובה after he dies, מגלגלין עליה שלא מכרה אלא למדונות שהיא צריכה להן, then the moment she's already swearing for, for her כתובה, as we, as we are going to see in predicted Zayn, then because she's already taking an oath, the Bedin is going to make her take an oath and extend the oath and say, oh, by the way, and within this oath, I hereby certify that I... Everything I sold of my husband was exactly what I needed from Mezonot. Just like the Bedin administers the assets of a husband who's now in town for the sake of his wife, so they do for the minor children under the age of six. But if they are older than six, the Bedin doesn't have the right to, without the, the husband being present, take from his assets and, and feed them, even though he actually has enough assets to support them. Not only someone who is out of town, but the same will apply to someone who lost his mental capacity. The Bedin go to his assets. And they sell and they support his wife and his little children under six. And they give him what they need. Some of the Geonim have said that all of this, all of this applies only when the wife can show that she still owns the Ketubah, this insurance policy, because it's possible that, that uh, she, she already, she already uh, recovered the money of the Ketubah from her husband. This is something that can be done, as we're going to see later. Or she forgave this ketubah to him, in which case, in either of these cases, she would have also lost the right to mezonot, as we are going to see in, in uh, chapter 17 and 18. And there is so, however, some other uh, geonim say 
that the presumption is that the ketubah exists and we don't require her to show proof that this is the case. And Rambam says, and I think that this is the right approach when the case is that her husband is out of town because then his obligation to her is Torah. However, if he died and she's coming to claim Mezonot under the ketubah as any widow, then this obligation now is the Rabbanan, not the Oraita. And also because she's depriving, she, she's taking from what belongs to the estate, and therefore now we have competing interests. So in these cases, she would need to show that she still has the ketubah. If the husband left and then she had to borrow in order to eat, when he comes, he becomes obligated to pay this loan. However, if somebody, without being asked by the wife to, to, to lend money, he just volunteers and he advances her any sum, this amount that he advanced without being asked, then this doesn't get transferred to the husband and he stands to lose all of this amount. Because neither he commanded, prescribed to him, he didn't ask him to do this, and she didn't take it as a loan, so we consider this as a gift. If a husband, if a husband um, tells his wife uh, the moment he's leaving out of town, why don't you, while I'm away, instead of getting mezonot, just support yourself. Go and work and your income is going to be enough for your mezonot. And she agrees to it, she doesn't have mezonot. Because if she wanted to, she could have protested and she could have said, I, I, I don't agree to this arrangement. I don't think I can make enough money to support myself. Now we have a he say, he said, she said situation. So she comes to court and she's and, and they say, okay, this is how much mezonot you are owed by your husband who is out of town. And here we are going to sell uh, his Ferrari and his Lamborghini and give you your mezonot. And then the husband comes back and says, hey, what are you doing? I, I left her in the bank account this and this money specifically for this reason. So now she gets to swear on Nekitat Chefetz, and by swearing, she disposes of his claim. So she, she does a Shavua, and then uh, the Bedin believes her. If she didn't do so, she just waited until he came back. So she didn't go to the Bedin, she just waited. And then when he comes back, he says, I left you money. She says, no, you didn't. And I had to borrow. And that's how I managed to make ends meet. 
נשבע שבועת הסט שהניח עליו ונפטר, then he, he's the one who needs to swear now, and if he swears that he left enough money, he is פטור, and he doesn't owe the money that she borrowed to that other third party, and she is the only one who is going to remain in debt to that person that lent her the money. Just a point here. So normally, the one who has a stronger claim, the one who is presumptively, the one who is probably right, is the one that gets to win the case just by taking an oath. That's how things work in Dine Mamonot, as we're going to see by Hashem in many contexts. If she, what she did was she sold some property, some chattels, property that's not real estate. And she says that she sold it in order to get mezonot, but he says, no, I left you for mezonot. So now she has a stronger case. Why does she have a stronger case? Because if she wanted, she could have said that these chattels were lost or stolen, in which case she would have won very easily. But she, she chose to give a weaker kind of, of argument. And therefore, we let her win the case if she swears of what is it. If, however, in any of these cases, instead of borrowing or selling or going to the Bedin, the woman decides to really live on the very minimum and starve herself day and night and then go and work a little bit and, and be able to support herself, she doesn't get to claim back from her husband afterwards back pay, as if it were, back pay on mezonot that she would have been entitled to. She has to claim them as she consumes them. Mezonot is not a right that accumulates, it's a continuous right, and if she decides to starve herself, she's in a way waiving that right. The last remaining halachot of this chapter are going to deal with a different, a different subject, and that is Nedarim, what kind of oaths a person can make, whether a husband or a wife, and what status do they have in respect to the rights of Mezonot under the Ketubah. Someone who makes, who takes an oath against the wife, this is an oath that a person can take against another person. And he says, I hereby take an oath that my wife will never benefit from me. Whether he specified the time, he could have said for three days or for 20 days or whatever, or he could have said nothing. The Bet Din waits for 30 days. 30 days, this nether can be honored and respected. If uh, during these 30 days, it was enough time for the nether to expire, in other words, it was for less than 30 days, or it didn't expire, but he went to a hacham and he annulled this nether, then great. If, however, this wasn't the case, after 30 days, Yossi ve'iten ketubah, he immediately triggers an obligation 
that the Bedin is going to enforce, as we're going to see in Chod Gerushin, and he must divorce the wife, and he must pay her the entire amount of the Ketubah. And during those 30 days that she is not allowed to benefit from him because of his neder, he also ve'ochelet, then she has two resorts. First of all, she can work for herself to, to cover at least part of her expenses. And in addition to that, she can borrow on behalf of her husband from a third party. And if, if what she makes on her own is not enough. Something similar, but not the same. If someone takes an oath and prohibits his wife from enjoy from any kind of food, so we wait for him 30 days, and if the nether expired or he annulled it, fine. can, however, more than that, he's not entitled to, he doesn't have a right to forbid his wife for more than 30 days from consuming anything. And if he does so, he's violating the Ketubah, he's violating her right to Mezonot, because she has the right implied in Mezonot to all Mezonot. Even if what the nether was about is something that's bad for her. So he said, my dear, my love, you need to lose weight, and I take an oath that you'll never enjoy from any uh, chocolate ice cream or from any, whatever, something very fattening. Or he, he said the nether on something that the wife never had before and probably was never going to have anyways. This still is a violation of the condition of the Ketubah of Mezonot, and he's in violation, he must pay her the Ketubah and divorce her with a get. If, however, she's the one who, who took the nether, she said, my dear husband, I have to lose weight. I, I take an oath. All the chocolate in the world is now forbidden to me. And the husband said, that's a great idea, my love. Amen. And he, he kept the nether. Or she did a nether of nezirut. And then he also did not annul it which means that she's not going to be able to drink wine. If he, if he was okay with her um, just remaining in that status of not eating any, any of that food or be, being a nezira, then that's fine. And, but however, if he says, I don't want to live with such a woman who, who is not allowed to, to, to have certain things, so fine, you, you don't you don't want them go through the regular process of divorce and give her the ketubah. She, it's not that she can she can she that you can get rid of her without the ketubah. Because the husband had the opportunity to be mefer that neder to annul that neder, and he chose to preserve it. So it's on him, not on her. From this, with this, I'll finish. You see a little bit the whole benefit of hafarat nedarim that, that the Torah was so wise to, to give the husband the power to do. So a husband is entitled, as we're going to see in Chod Nedarim, to annul the, the oath that his wife takes. And this is obviously for, for uh, Shalom Bayit, because as you can see from the Sarachah, 
the alternative very often results in a situation that leads to divorce. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen.